0: Welcome to The Integral Stage and to a very special episode, one I've been looking forward to for a while. I'm joined by John Verveke, a cognitive scientist and philosopher from the University of Toronto and a well-known, influential, beloved voice in this corner of the internet for, for many of us. And I'm also joined by Lehman Pascal, my best partner in crime on The Integral Stage. And we're planning today to dialogue about our respective approaches to religion and spirituality in this postmodern age. Lehman and I will talk about integral post spirituality and how we understand that, what we mean by it, and our thoughts on and approaches to recommendations for spiritual practice. And we'd like to explore with John various possible points of intersection or resonance with his work on the religion that's not a religion, his thoughts on non-theism, and the development of ecologies of practices
1: mm-hmm. to
0: help us better respond to the, the needs of the, the meaning crisis. And so before we get started, I'd like to make a formal statement to get us rolling. I'd like to ask first if you have uh, anything either of you'd like to share just by way of introduction.
1: No, this sounds like a great setup, Bruce. Thank you. Great.
2: Uh, Yeah, people probably know who I am or else don't need to know who I am, but uh, I'm certainly deeply pleased to be here with two of my favorite, most sensitive thinkers and educators. I I think there's uh, uh, clearly a kind of new or updated field opening for rebuilding, reframing, and revalidating spirituality and religion in a way that incorporates natural science and postmodern critique that could offer us strategies for Uh, growth and depth and transcendence and adaptive meaning-making facing both the eternal human mortal uncertainties and the new kinds of uncertainties based in a radical technological, social, and ecological change period we might be facing. Uh, And there's a lot of different ways to frame that. Metamodern spirituality is one way to frame that. And uh, the metamodern anthology dispatches from a time between worlds has several explicitly spiritual and religious texts in it religion that is not a religion is a way to frame it. And integral post-metaphysical spirituality is a third way into the same terrain. So I'm looking forward
0: to seeing what bubbles
2: up in the overlaps.
0: Great. Yeah. And I'd like to get into looking at what is integral post-metaphysical spirituality, what we mean by that. But before we do, I wanted to actually just offer a note of appreciation to John for you and your writings together with Um, Chris and Philippe on uh, zombies in uh, Western culture and relating the symbol of the zombie to the meaning crisis. And I'm I'm noting that because in integral post-metaphysical spirituality, and that's such a mouthful, I'm going to start saying IPS from now on, if that's all right. Um, But in IPS, we've also done that, taken up different literaries and mythological figures and, and played with them in different ways. And one notable example is Cthulhu from the Lovecraft mythos, the ancient one? You know he's from the Tehom, the deep. Uh, Lovecraft conceives of him as a you know a malevolent being sleeping at the bottom of the ocean, and his invoked presence has the power to drive human beings mad. And so for IPS, Cthulhu has come to be adopted and serves as a kind of a patron deity, maybe a wrathful deity. He's a uh, a specter that haunts the edges of our thinking, um, a specter of unknowing that haunts the edges of our thinking. And he's the terrible one in the original sense of the word, that, which has the power to, to knock you to the ground, challenging our claims to ultimate possession of the world in our models or, or beliefs or systems. Um, the force that has the power to disrupt our, the boundaries of our psychoimmunological projects And, you know, he has the potential really to shatter all meaning and and disrupt all thought and perception, um, cast us into madness. But as a wrathful deity or guardian of IPS treated with respect um, as he lies at the, the bottom of the sea, he can serve as a kind of insurer of epistemological humility and also maybe as a psychopomp or an initiator to walking along that fine line between knowing and unknowing that's especially suited for a post-metaphysical orientation. So I just wanted to name that as one mythological literary archetypal figure that we've played with. And there are others that we might get into like the centaur or some others that are functional and, and, and meaningful in the IPS and integral spiritual context. But I wanted to check in with you, John, to see if you could say a little bit about, what role the the trope of the zombie has played for, in the articulation of the meaning crisis, and if there are any other archetypal or literary forms that you've appealed to and what you think about that as just a, a general strategy in, in, in building a religion that's not a religion or, or invoking a you know, a modern spirituality, that, that second question is really directed to, to both you and layman.
1: Thank you, Bruce. It's interesting, the uh, I guess the revival is that the right word? The revival of Lovecraft now. Um, I think horror is the last place in which uh, the general public still finds when horror is horror and not just fear of predation, which is what a lot of horror movies actually are. Just oh, and I I don't, I don't find those of much value. Uh, but when there's actual horror. Um, horror is the one place, I think, where people still bump up against the real possibility of transcendence. And and, and so I think that's uh, very interesting just to note. I'd like to think about what you had just said there uh, more at length. What makes the zombie different um, in some ways is um, the zombie doesn't seem to have much of an archetypal uh, uh, heritage to it. Uh, Deleuze, of course, commented on this at length um, and so we found it interesting because you could make at least a plausible case for it being an emergent mythos and therefore deeply a responsive mythos. And that was the proposal we made in the book that it, it was uh, the zombie represents uh, an expression, but not um, an articulation in the sense of making intelligible, but an expression and not a resolution of uh, the meaning crisis. And people of course, t- took a religious attitude towards the zombie, uh, they all would often participate in zombie walks. Um, and we found this all very, um, well, to put it in, a, in an a-, a contested adjective, we found this all very religious behavior. Um, and it was odd, because it's religion that seems to be offering the not just a lack of, but the perversion of the possibility of the resurrection, right? It's it's you, the zombie comes back, but not to eat abundant life, but to Endless decay, and the zombie comes back hungry for the organ of meaning, uh, the the brain, but never satisfied by any consumption. Itself unable to talk or to make meaning, um, appearing to be communal, but actually not. It shuffles in a in a horde. It doesn't it doesn't network as a community. It doesn't have a home like Dracula's lair or 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 the wolf or Dracula's castle or the Wolfman's lair or anything like that. Uh, the zombie represents a kind of perpetual domicide. Um, and this is also by the fact that the zombie is uh, it ha- it has no, it has no destination. The zombie just drifts. Um, and so these are all deep features uh, of the meaning crisis. And one of the things that intrigued us was how a separate mythogram that does have archetypal legacy got magnetically drawn to it, which is the mythogram of the apocalypse. Um, which, of course, has, you know, deeply perennial legacy to it, and this, and this is gets drawn in, right? But, of course, the core of the apocalypse is the revelation, the disclosure of the new world, and the zombie apocalypse doesn't do that at all. So not only is the resurrection being perverted, right, the, the apocalypse is being perverted because what happens in the zombie apocalypse is just the ending without any insight whatsoever. That's its quintessential feature. Everything ends and nothing was learned from this. Nothing is disclosed. Nothing is opened up, right? And, of course, and then we, we cite the fact, uh, the central fact, which is, in case we didn't get it, we were hit over the head with it within The Walking Dead, which is, you know, at, at more than one occasion, one of the central characters says, we are The Walking Dead, of course, right? Um, and it's so an active identification, again, uh, within that, you know, uh, genre-setting TV series. So, yeah, uh, I, I'm, I'm very interested in that. And then Brendan and Lehman and I have taken up what, it would be lo- what, it, what would it look like to try and create in a responsive way, responsive to the meeting crisis, responsive to our situation? What would it be like to create new sacred art that has the potential of being realized? It's nothing we could make. We, we, have the, we, we can create sacred art, uh, art that could be taken up and, uh, uh, and indwelt and dwell within people's lives as something sacred, and what would that look like? And uh, I won't, I won't say too much about that because maybe we'll talk about it later. But we've been playing around with uh, that the the role, uh, artful scaling and the scaling of art. There's slight variations on that would play. Um, so I think the participatory generation and appreciation in in the deep sense of that word of the symbolic has to be. An integral part of responding to the meeting crisis. And like I said, I'm only gesturing at an argument that Layman and Brendan and I are unpacking, uh, you know, at great length, and we are not finished, we're continuing to do so. But I hope that gives at least a gist of an answer uh, to your question.
2: It's a very interesting way to begin the discussion, Bruce, to bring this up. Um, I, I'm very intrigued by what John was saying about the I guess I would call the apophatic disclosure element, like the uh, the revelation yeah, that brings nothing forward. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, that's yeah, very yeah. intriguing to me. I, I like the figure of the zombie in many ways. I think the feature of the, the double feature of the brain, which is they're hungry for, but also that's where you shoot them. So there's like yeah. some issue around their prefrontal cortex functions that seems to be <laughs> lacking, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but they're not just a, a figure of horror. They're a figure of pleasure right? Mm-hmm. The, the zombie walks people, there's something about being pre articulate about being unusually embodied about moving as a swarm that maybe we're collectively lacking and want to get back in touch with. Maybe it's something that comes up in the, you know, the Dionysian imagery of people being torn to pieces in the primal or ritual scenario. Um, but I think there's a neat, you mentioned the walking dead, John, you know, at, as apex figures you know there's yahweh there's marduk there's rick grimes there's a there's a patriarchal character who's going to do whatever it takes to establish the field of meaningful order and then there's cthulhu there's uh, an organic, unfocused. You can't get your hands on it. It's mu- multi-directional. It's seething. It's non-human in its very nature. I think that's something that our ancestors didn't necessarily do a great job of integrating into their meaning-making systems. It, you know, Usually the, the, the patriarchal mythogram pushes that one to the outside, slays that one, builds a world out of its carcass And I think now we're looking at partly through the innovations and the insights of contemporary science and understanding that the world that we need to work with and build on actually looks a lot more like Cthulhu. It's a world of complexity, of swarms, of things that we literally cannot conceive to ourselves, even though we have to work with them, so that we may have a task that our ancestors didn't have, which is to somehow bring Cthulhu into our meaning-making paradigm rather than to set up a paradigm in which that one is excluded from the circle of the human firelight. Um, So that's what comes up for me, but maybe we want to go into definitions of IPS or, or, or or we want to keep going on this. I have no idea. Did you want to say something, John?
1: Yeah. I just wanted to say, uh, just to give uh, a connection and some credit. I mean, I, that, that's kind of the core argument of Mark Taylor's after God that we've moved into a place where we are after God because God is set within that fundamental grammar like you just articulated, layman. And we are now in a stage where dynamic complexity is understood to be a, a, a foundational aspect of reality. And that our, our cons and, and, and Kaufman, Stuart Kaufman has done, done something similar in reinventing the sacred, that our notions of sacredness and religiosity have to fundamentally change to wrestle uh, with that. So I just wanted to mention that uh, I think that idea you propose, and I'm not trying to take anything away from you, of course, you're my friend, uh, but, um, um, you know, you can see convergent arguments from Stuart Kaufman, and especially Mark Taylor's After God. Yeah, I would
2: probably say, you know, on the one hand, this is an important strategy for making our um, mythic frame of meaning making more antifragile by trying to challenge it forth Uh, under the force of the thing that's usually excluded, but at the same time that Lovecraftian imagery, that the multi-tentacled unconceivable one is bubbling up out of the ocean's depths, I I see that happening in the culture. Multiple people are coming across this idea. We are the collective ocean in which this figure is re-arising to the surface. Yeah, I think for the
0: iconography of an emerging religion that's not a religion for an integral post-metaphysical spirituality. We we want some figures that can evoke for us some of the sense of goodness and truth and beauty, these aspirational type figures. But I think we've focused in on Cthulhu uh, for some of the reasons that uh, Lehman just articulated and using the Tibetan Buddhist strategy of, of what has haunted the edges of the religious sphere as the Uh, and the tantric strategy generally of of taking what is horrific or unassimilable or unacceptable or challenging to order and folding it in in different kinds of roles that can serve the overall um, meaning ecology and make it more robust. And I think we really are confronting the unmasterability of the the complexity of the world and the challenges that it poses to our, our little human projects. And can we figure out a way not to tame it not to master it but to negotiate and dance skillfully with that in a way that that's sacred and that puts us in touch with what's at the very edges of of what's knowable and what at the very edges of what coheres you know it's that liminal zone on um, that that edge where where transformation is possible um, where at the edges of a you know dissipative structure far from equilibrium where chaos lurks and there's the potential both to come utterly undone but also in that that region of undoing there's the potential to reorganize fractally around new orders of meaning and being so there's can we figure out ways to to dance skillfully with that and so i think that's one thing that ips is is wanting to invoke and play with while not only working with and trading on the horror genre and you know literary figures in that way but I think it's important to to bring that in and fold that in and layman and I a long time ago played you know playfully with the the graboids you know the 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 creatures from Tremors and invoked some other images for you know different mythological and 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 meaning uh meaningful roles but yeah before we go maybe too far straight into all that I'd like to just circle in on on talking about uh IPS and and what that project is and how we can relate it to, you know, all of the, the wonderful work that you've been doing, John. And I know some of your preliminary or earlier conversations with layman have already gotten into some of that territory for us. Uh, I think the, the genesis of, of IPS, the conception of IPS integral post Metaphysical spirituality comes from Ken Wilber's work, especially mm-hmm. what he proposed, uh, in his more recent set of writings that are called Wilbur five, the Wilbur five phase of his work. And there he's proposing a post metaphysical turn. I don't think he ever really uses the words integral post metaphysical spirituality in itself as, as a vocabulary term um, or a descriptor, but that's what he's getting at. And that's what we've been trying to look at. And I've, I've had a forum dedicated to that for maybe 15, 18 years and we've done a lot of work there and collective inquiry there. And, and layman's been a big part of that, but as a just introductory framing, you know, by integral plus metaphysical spirituality uh, the integral part obviously points to a holistic inclusion of multiple human capacities and dimensions and ways of knowing and skill sets and intelligences and styles and types, something that can be inclusive of as much of the fullness of of human potential and expression as possible. Again, kind of in a tantric spirit of working with all of those things um, constructively and creatively and also inclusive broadly of different modes of uh, different disciplines, different traditions, different modes of working with human potential and, um, and different knowledge disciplines so that it's a, you know a trans-lineage type approach, a, a metadisciplinary type of approach, um, but one that's not simply pluralistic, but it's an integral pluralism that tries to find the synergies among these different ways of working. And then by post-metaphysical, one way to look at that is how can we draw on the, uh, you could say, the explanatory and grounding and orienting gifts of the old metaphysical systems in a way that's still enriching and and, and nurturing to us as human beings, but without a lot of the ontological baggage that doesn't really float in today's, you know, modern um, scientific world. And there are different ways you can approach that. One is just more of a, a, a scientific humanist approach where it's more of a matter of, of translation. You just take all of the spiritual elements and you translate them, you psychologize them, you you reframe them within a modern humanistic scientific context. And as a project, that's fine. And a lot of people have been working in that area. I think for Wilbur and for um, several of us who've been exploring this for a number of years, we're looking something, looking at something and for something more like an onto-epistemological shift, a modal shift. It's not just a matter of retranslating things into contemporary terms, but really working in the architecture of our meaning and knowing, drawing on postmodern critical theory insights, um, contemplative insights, uh, modern cognitive science, all of that. and. For the cognitive science piece, integral theory, and also you could say participatory metaphysics, People, the work of people like Jorge Ferrer or the ecological okay. philosopher, uh, Henrik Skolomowski, they've been articulating a kind of a participatory conception of, of human relationship to the world. And those are all drawing on, especially the work of Varela and Maturana and Evan Thompson, around articulating an active, mm-hmm. embodied understandings of, of human being and knowing in the world. And so in that context, spirituality is understood as an active and embodied, a way of, of working with these dimensions of existence and our human capacities in ways that could be transformative and, and, and serve our, our, our deepening and our maturation and our are opening to, to broader and, and, and more fulfilled ways of knowing and participating in the world. Um, and a lot of the contemplative wisdom can be drawn into this, but it doesn't have to be taken forward uh, in exactly the theological packages that it came in. We can still use that language, but in a more playful, creative, literary way, in a sense. Um, and in this context, The modern humanist, you know, framings are are valid and valuable, but they're also not taken as the default. There's a a willingness to remain open to the different ways that we might frame what we encounter and experience.
1: (laughs) Wow, (laughs) that was uh, uh, beautiful, Bruce, (laughs) just beautiful, Um, comprehensive and articulate. I'm in a, a convergent agreement, of course, with a lot of what you said there, um, which, of course, is why you invited me to talk with you in layman. And, and, and um, I guess for me, I'm, I'm a little bit more critical of some of the metaphysical positions. I'm, I, I'm sort of critical of the, the Enlightenment conception uh, that we have been, has been named la- la- modernity. And 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 because of its close association with it, I'm I'm I'm, our, I'm, I'm more critical of sort of secular humanism because of um, I think those two positions suffer an important inadequacy about being able to actually ground both science as a thing as give it an ontological status as opposed to just a disciplinary name um, and us as meaning making entities. So I find. That particular worldview has a hole in it that is not just, you know, a criticism we can make from the outside. Like we might criticize, you know, the Neoplatonic tradition, or, you know, being inadequate for reasons X, Y, and Z. We live in the midst of this, and so the this this black hole at the center of those uh, worldviews, I think, needs to be challenged in order to ameliorate the suffering that 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 is presently being caused by them. Uh, so I think they the, the, because we dwell within them and because they are imperial in a very real sense in our world, and so the, the combination of them being imperial and them being, I think, very plausibly responsible for a lot of the suffering, I feel called upon to challenge them in a more penetrating fashion, I suppose. So um, I think, the, yeah, the current worldview has... A special status, because it has a special responsibility, which means I think we are responsible for bringing it into a special kind of criticism that the other worldviews we might consider uh, don't have for us. So that, that's perhaps a small difference uh, that I would come in from. Um, I, I tend to take, um, like I said, a more, much more critical stance about this, precisely because, well, I, th- I think the situation is exigent. And we have to do. We have to. We have to pick our battles very wisely because we don't have a lot of time. We don't have a lot of resources. So I, this is ultimately a pragmatic argument, but that doesn't mean it should be ignored. And so that's why I, I make that case about why I, I see myself as taking a more. Uh, I don't know, less accommodating, perhaps is a better adjective. I see myself as taking a less accommodating stance uh, towards uh, the modernity secularism but also the modernity, secularism, fundamentalism, because those three are bound together, um, very much interdefining. So I take a a critical stance towards that triangulation uh, that is at the core uh, of a lot of sort of the imperial dominant worldview right now. Yeah, I agree with the sense of
2: urgency and the criticism that accompanies that. I think we need something like Spirituality and religion to produce the kinds of people and the kinds of interpersonal mobilizations necessary to even plausibly wrestle with the kind of world we're in and the kind of world that's emerging,
1: yeah.
2: although I tend to um, locate the danger mostly in the um, the patterns and incentives of the modern system of protocols you know in the socioeconomic and procedural dimension and not so much in the philosophical worldview that tends to accompany that because I tend to think of each worldview whether we think of it as the traditional worldview or the secular modern worldview as as being a range and in within that range there are some that are, Um, very open and developmental and transcendent and able to wrestle with the things we face and some that are extremely closed down. And when you listen to people speak, they might be using almost identical words to describe their paradigm. And yet the consequence of that paradigm might be radically different based on tiny variations in how they hold that.
1: I guess for me, uh, uh, I don't know if we're disagreeing. I do think there is a way in which the scientific worldview, and I'm a scientist, so I'm not here to try and refute in some Liddite fashion science, that's ridiculous. But the way the scientific view, it especially insinuates itself as an ontology into our lives. And this is the Heideggerian critique, that you know science is a different kind of ontology because of the way it insinuates us into technology. And of course, technology is now becoming hyper-technology and I think that exacerbates that issue even more so. Uh, people are increasingly surrounded by a technology that's making fundamental impacts on their cognitive capacity and their self-understanding via instruments that they do not in any deep way understand. Um, and, and that is a very—I uh, mean, this—I'm just—I'm just parroting Heidegger's critique. That's a very, very dangerous situation for us to be in, in a lot of ways. Um, like I said, we are right now running this grand experiment on human development by basically ho- hooking, hooking our children up to cell phones and to the internet without any good clear idea what that's going to do to development. Um, and like I said, um, the fact that that is, is—you this is what I want to put my finger on, Lehman, the fact that that is a gl- almost a, a universally shared project. That is almost universally not called into question. That's exactly what I'm trying to put my finger on as a shared ontological framework. That, that's that's what I. So I'm trying to give you a concrete example of what I'm I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I agree
0: with that yeah. too. And
2: so, oh, go ahead, Lehman. I'll come in after. No, I just wanted to um, point out that I think a lot of this has to do with shifting away from the apparent content of paradigms and worldviews to the underlying. Uh, dynamic procedures and mechanisms that make them function, right? If we take out uh, all the things that are just the, the asserted views and limitations of the modern worldview and we go, yes, but there are some procedures That really work well, right? We have this scientific thing, we have this rational thing. These are great procedures. Yes, let's keep those procedures and sort of let go of or ease our grip on the limiting assertion of what the world consists of. And then we can also do that to all the other epistemic worldviews and say, well, let's not worry so much about what seems to be the ontological assertions of traditionalism. Let's think about what practices they were doing that might have been equally useful to the Useful practices in modernity, or the useful practices in archaic and indigenous realms—things like that. If we can move, if we can move toward the generative mechanisms and yeah.
1: away from the content assertions, I agree with that. I think, uh, and I fundamentally think, we should be paying more attention to the generative processes as opposed to the salient products. So, I think that's deeply right. I guess what I would want to say in this, and then I'll give a space to Bruce, but I'm going to loop in what Bruce introduced us with. I mean, if I, if, I, if I go to the core, right, uh, uh, of these issues uh, 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 of, of like, for example, rationality, I think one of the things that is in proper need of a profound reformulation, and one of the driving things coming out of cognitive science is a reformulation of the notion of rationality, uh, which means a deep critique and rejection of, uh, uh, of modernity, the, the, the modern notion of rationality. Like, 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 let's take it, like let's say we're trying to ground science We have to bring in the the Cthulhu elements the two like look look at the crux of at the crux of these two these two generative processes within the scientific enterprise reason and insight inference and insight right insight requires like self-organizing criticality you have to have the Cthulhu moment of something outside your frame breaks your frame and then you have to open up and there's a right there's the flash there's the awe and that is not something you can infer your way through. It's, it's a sort of microcosm of a fundamental trans, uh, transformation that's going on. And yet it's at the core of science because you remove insight from science. You remove the ability for science to do something that's foundational, which is to, you know, it, to reframe our understanding of reality. If science can't do that, it's just doing endless redescription. If you remove reframing from science, you don't have science anymore. You just have endlessly cycling descriptions. So I take that to be a core move. The other thing is reason. And, you know, this is the work of, you know, DC Schindler and the Catholicity of reason and a bunch of other stuff. You know, I take it that that we have moved off or what, sorry, what for e-cognitive science is getting us to see is to center not on, right. Uh, the conclusiveness, the certainty of the conclusion as the hallmark of reason, but its capacity for self-correction, right? That, that at the core of reason is this capacity for self-correction. The problem with self-correction is it is. a, I'll do this argument quickly and I, I unpack it elsewhere. I mean, I'm actually writing about it right now. At the core of self-correction is a kind of self-transcendence. This makes it analogous to insight in a powerful way. The problem with self-transcendence, and this is Galen Strawson and Agnes Callard, it's inherently transformative. It's an inherently paradoxical thing to do because I somehow have to go into the other to become myself, other than what I was, while remaining what I am. And that's at the core of reason, and and, and, and it's a fundamentally, uh, you know, Cthulian moment within the core of rationality. And if you try to reject that paradox, you end up in Mino's paradox, or you end up locked in inside that reason can only know itself, like Kant, right? And 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 so. Like recognizing what we were talking about at the beginning today, at the core of insight and of of inference insofar as it is reasoning, these two generative machines at the core of science, I think is something that needs to happen right now. So that's what I mean about even taking, if I can put it this way, the revolution to the heart of the generative mechanisms. That's what I see is happening right now. And, and again, I don't know if we're disagreeing or if we're just, we're, we're putting a different emphasis on the uh, you know um, different aspects of the same uh, core thing. Um, I don't know. I, that's what I was called to say, though, to you and what you were saying. I was like, no, no, even like there, right? There's a sense in which we're, we're stepping back. I agree with you. We, we should step back from the product. Whenever we're evaluating any paradigm, we should be looking at the gender of machinery. But I think what I'm saying is, um the generative machinery is itself uh, being called into question. I think in a very productive manner, I think it's liberating human beings in a in, in a in a it's freeing them from and freeing them to in a way that allows I mean think about how that what I just talked about allows for a real rapprochement between the mystical and the rational without either one being subsumed or made the servant of the other. That that's that's what I would want to that's what I want to say. I, sorry, I feel like I'm coming off as very disagreeable, and that's not that's not what I'm fundamentally feeling right now. That's not what I'm fundamentally feeling. I just wanna I want to probe this deep deep. I guess the what's in my mind is I agree with like ninety eight percent of what you said, and I'm trying to find something to talk about with you. And so this is what what, what I'm zeroing in on, I guess.
0: <laughs> to to draw on another mythic form that we sometimes use in IPS is the figure of Cora k-h-o-r-a or c-h-o-r-a we use that as a feminized yeah. figure as a, a black hole at the center of our thinking as the as a gap as a slippage point as a rupture point at the center mm. of thinking and rationalizing and as think you know especially understood in this post-metaphysical autopoetic and active epistemology where y- you do try to remain constantly open to that potential for rupture that 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 Entering that those zones of indeterminacy where the new can can bubble forth, but there's always the the danger the, the cathonic catholic danger of, of of dissolution and and, and
1: disintegration yes
0: disintegration yeah. right but Cora is the goddess that kind of walks you at that boundary point again it, with it, those those gaps the black holes that we have to deal with with proper reasoning.
1: Is that related to the notion of the Korah, the receptacle in Plato at all? Yes. yes. Ah, well, then I, I completely resonate with that in, in a deep fashion. I think uh, I think the, the standard interpretation of the Korah as space within Plato is a mistake. I think it points to something more metaphysical, exactly like what you're putting your finger on, Bruce. So uh, I, I, I think I applaud that because I think that is a much deeper reading of what Plato was trying to get at. And recovering that in a way, uh, that you know sets it not against but apart from just sort of a Newtonian sense of space. I think that is, I think that is giving due justice to what Plato was trying to get at, and I think it's an important idea. I'm glad to hear that. That's interesting. Sorry, I just want to savor that. That is both a profound idea and a powerful symbol, Layman. That's the kind of thing we <laughs> like. We were talking about with Brendan. That's a concrete instance of it, yeah. uh, right there, right there. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. There's a, I mean,
2: w- what you were saying a moment ago, John, is interesting because I think one of the dangers in attempting to think in terms of integrative pluralism, or at some kind of level, is the danger of uh, simply collecting a lot of different perspectives and looking yep. for things they have in common, yes. rather than yes. enabling a, a self-correcting developmental mechanism, right? And right. I think there's, right. it's it's important to not. Um, prejudge anything as being higher or lower necessarily, but it's also important to afford ourselves the opportunity to think developmentally in the sense that Einsteinian gravity is legitimately a deeper or grander level than Newtonian gravity, because it A, explains exactly why and where Newtonian gravity worked, and also uh, allows us to do gravitational equations that Newton could not do. Right, so exactly. there is a there's a self correction and expansion mechanism implied, and we can't do without that when we're looking multiple paradigmatically. Okay, um, excellent. Well, yeah. but, that but also I love this idea of the core, of Bruce, because I think the um, like it's like what what is a higher take? A higher take is on the one hand something that doesn't just collect multiple perspectives, but also allows them to challenge each other, and on the other hand, it's something that folds in the limit of the knowing process into the new attempt at knowing, right? So that Cthulhu or the Korra or whatever it is, we have to be aware of our encounter with what causes our models to fail. And all of that procedure has to be in the new models. And that's something we didn't see historically in most of the models that came forward.
1: Yeah, okay, that's good. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a very helpful response, Lehman. One of the things uh, I've been concerned about with Wilbur. Oh, by the way, I met him recently virtually, and he he knows of my work and likes me. Which so I've got to talk to him at some point. That's um, one of my earlier concerns, and part of part of it is I'm 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 like I'm considerably ignorant uh, compared to the knowledge you two have of integral. So, you know, uh, I may be speaking out of ignorance, but when when I did read Wilbur, it felt very much like what you were just describing, layman. At times, it felt like. You know these structural diagrams and these charts and these tables and it was like but what's the underlying like what's the underlying method other than structural comparison that's going on here right there was very little discussion at least in what I read and, and he may have corrected that I'm totally open to hearing that by the way but in what I read was like I, I, I didn't get a lot of the philosophy of the methodology and it just kept looking like, oh, what I do is I bring things structurally together and I look for isomorphisms or, or, or similarities and I note them and point them out and, and then I make generalizations from that. And I was thinking uh, that's a very questionable methodology for a lot of deep reasons, some of the ones that I think we've been articulating here. So whether or not that's in Wilbur or not is, is one point and that's more of a scholastic point. The fact that what you just said, Layman, I think, anticipates that criticism and then responds to it. I'm, I think I want to acknowledge that you've just done that for me. There, it's like no, no, no. What we do, we're not just doing that. We're not just collecting and saying, you know, we're not just doing what the naturalists did before Darwin. We're not noting all the strata. We're trying to get at what's the mechanism that explains why the strata are there, right? And, and for me, uh, that's where cognitive science plays, I think, uh, an important role. But the way you folded it in epistemologically, Layman, and what you just said. I just want to acknowledge. I think that's a very good answer to the problem I was posing. I appreciate that, and I'm I'm wondering. You know, I noticed it says non theism in, in the
2: title of this, Bruce. Uh, whether we want to touch on on the role that God plays here, because one of the things that modernity has tended to do is exclude the God figure, and so if we're challenging some elements or some basic premises of the way modernity goes about processing things. What do we then do with the figure of God? How do, we, how do we bring it back? How do we go beyond? How do we use God in a way that um, is an upset, uh, an acceptable upset to modern meaning-making strategies so that God can it be something that forces forth greater fields of meaning? And how do we relate that to the kind of God that modernity might legitimately have gone beyond in its understanding of the world?
1: Could I add one more dimension to the question before Bruce responds? Which is a kind of an Anselm point, point from Anselm. Ultimately, this can't be, if the kind of thing that we're trying to invoke with this can't be something that is at just our uh, constructive disposal. Ultimately, we have to conform. uh, I'm sorry, this is the only pronoun that's the, the most neutral. We have to conform to it. Rather than how can we make it conform to us? Because if we're doing it, then we're undermining uh, sort of an essential feature of it. I'm not saying we shouldn't answer your question, layman, but I'm just putting in an added constraint on the way we can answer it. it, it right? It's it's a it's much more of a reciprocal reconstruction. Or not only how can we reconstruct God for us, but how how do we need to be reconstructed for God? Um, if I can put it that way. If I can put it that way.
0: I really like that, and yeah, there are a number of, of themes that I think we could explore here. For me, in, in choosing the uh, focus on non theism, I'm um, in relationship to integral post metaphysical spirituality, to IPS, one thing is, you know, as I understand, and I'll, I'll take your your correction or your your further explanation, John. But I understand part of the idea of non theism is that it challenges the basic assumptions of you know, some discrete entity that's taken, you know, as the the, the force behind reality of theism, but also of atheism and just taking those terms on its own, on their own, and then rejecting them as if that's a position. And instead it's saying there is a place for the sacred in, in our, our world and our living, and that encounters with the sacred are real and transformative. And how can we fold that into our meaning making and to our living, um, in a way that doesn't result in these reified caricatures that are either held up or chopped down like a pinata by the atheists and the theists. Um, is there a way to orient towards the sacred that's that's living and generative? Um, and you know, I think there's a union element to that. He would say, can we bracket out um, the metaphysical aspect of it and just note that this is a living human possibility to encounter this and what happens in that encounter? and for me within like a the inactive framing of that that integral theory the the participatory and active framing that integral theory or participatory uh, metaphysics talk about and of course cognitive science there's a you know a way to understand this in an active terms that spiritual practices can open us to those kinds of encounters and handled well they can both illuminate and inform and rupture and break down um, old encrusted meanings and, 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 and really play a generative role in our, our overall ecologies of meaning. Layman and I some, maybe a year or two ago, did a, a video on, you know, what good is God talk? Is there still a role for...
1: I watched that? some of it. I watched oh, some you? of it. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. So we have, you know, I don't use God talk in my regular discourse, But I do want to leave room for it. And I appreciate somebody like Raimon Panikar, who still uses the language, but really conceives of it as the human depth dimension, or Richard Kearney, who talks about anatheism, which is after the death of God, returning to some encounter with the sacred as that other, which I think this goes to your point that you were just making, not only as some apex figure that we can just include in our own meaning systems, but as that, that other, that 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 other in being or reality that has the capacity to act on us um, in ways that are outside of our own control or conception. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I would put that.
1: I, there's a lot there, Bruce. There's a lot. There's a lot of consonants. So yeah, I, I, there's sort of moments um, in the argument that I'm still developing with others. And on my own about non-theism and the, and, the, and, the, and the important moment was the like that first or the first moment which is I think the central moment is what what are the shared set of presuppositions right um, and why why should we reject both why should we reject the presuppositions that are held both by sort of common theism and uh, mo- and, and, and and modern atheism I call it common theism because classical theism is very very different if you look at Aquinas, and Plotinus and people like that, that notion of theism is very different from what theism is right now. And there's problems with the, the common theism, you have the, auto, you know, Heidegger's theological critique, you have issues um, around when the only way you can make the arguments for the existence of God even plausible is to make God kind of a the equivalent to ultimate reality, because then the arguments run. But then what does that mean? Like both the atheist and the, and the theist believes there's something like ultimate reality. And then what does that mean? And, you know, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and so non-theism, that's the first moment. And I think it's the core moment. But I've come to realize there's, there's sort of a deeper set of presuppositions, sort of presuppositions of the presuppositions, if I could put it that way. And it has to again go to what, what what you your opening oeuvre has just like it just keeps like a like a, a pebble dropped into a pond of my thought right now, which is, and this this is this is something uh, that uh, really hit me when I was reading John Hick, and um, he made it a meta argument. And previously I incorporated that into the first moment of non-theism, but now I think it goes deeper. And, and, the, and the argument he makes is the, the clearest conclusion we can draw about the millennial debate about the existence of God um, is the spiritual ambiguity of the universe. That if the universe was intelligible enough to resolve this issue, we it should possibly have been resolved, right? Uh, and then there's something, and so he says... He, he understands it a little too Kantian, and I'm willing to make it more you know, embodied and embedded. But right now, I'll just leave the argument it is. It's like the, the spiritual ambiguity. And I think this goes towards layman's point about the – and I think this is where we're deeply convergent, layman. The perennial – across many spiritualities, there's the perennial presupposition of excluding – the ambiguity, And this is Derrida was sort of trying to get us to awaken to this of excluding the ambiguous. And no, no, it's all order. It's all order. And it's like, no, we need a sense of the sacred that pr- properly acknowledges the reality of spiritual ambiguity. And here's how I'm not just like Jung, because Jung is trapped within, at least until the very end, a kind of Kantian uh, framework like Hick, and I want to say no. To uh, in the end, that, that's not just sort of due to human limitation. I want to I want to make the argument no, because we we've, we've gone through several epistemological frames, ontological frames, cultural frames, historical frames, and we still keep right thinking that this issue can be resolved that the universe will give us the evidence that will resolve the ambiguity. Why not try? and it takes courage the proposal no the universe is spiritually ambiguous and that isn't an accident of our f- finite limitation maybe that is properly an ontological feature of reality that's how i'm not being union is what i'm saying and uh, we need to challenge and this and i think layman's exactly right this is the deepest of presuppositions right going all the way back right you, you know in ancient egypt you can see that that, that's why when you said that, layman, I wanted to come back to that. I'm like, this is a deeper, this is the second moment, I would put it, of non-theism is to say, well, let's go even deeper, right? which there's this even deeper presupposition that's even deeper than the theist-atheist debate. It's a whole presupposition about the ontological grounding of sacredness itself that needs to be called into question. We need to seriously consider the possibility that this is a proper feature of the ontology of the universe. And then what does that mean? And notice if we thought of knowledge as clarity, then this is a disaster for us. But if we think of knowledge as the way we were talking about it, with this self-transcendence and this dynamic self-creation and the, and the frame breaking and the frame making, then that universe is not unknowable because it's spiritually ambiguous. It might ultimately ground the core of insight and inference, and so we don't have to face it like, oh my God, this means we're cut off from reality, we're severed from it. It's no, no, no. The spiritual ambiguity might be that uh, that like, look, let's be honest. In the heart of our our relationship to sacredness, we find ambiguity in it profoundly. What? instead of treating that like a disorder or a disease? No, no. Maybe that's a deep point of conformity. So that's what I'm now calling the second moment of non-theism. and you both prefigured it in you know in some of your opening comments. And I just wanted I wanted to gather that and say yes, you know the 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 you know the 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 the, the first moment I think is crucial. It, it's foundational. You're like you reject the the shared presuppositional presuppositional framework of the theist and and the atheist, but then for me that 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 ultimately gets to yeah. But there's a deeper thing that sort of licensed that framework in the first place. And that's what I wanted to call in question. And for me, that's the deeper meaning of non-theism right now. Sorry, that was a lot, but I was trying, I was truly really oh, trying yeah. to pick up on some stuff that both of you said that I think is just central to what I'm wrestling with right now. No, I resonate with that a lot. I mean, I think you, if you take atheist
2: versus theist and you bring them closer together and you have like a slash, Theism. (laughs) And then you start to wonder what that slash signifies (laughs) and how deep that goes, because in many ways, God is sort of a, you know, if we conceive God as a computational operation, it's it's the profound apex magnification of whatever we think reality consists of. And if we think reality consists of a whole bunch of perfectly known points, then God is the ultimate uh, piece of knowledge. But if we think that ontology itself is always incomplete, right? If, if any piece of knowledge is intercontextual, interperspectival, partially yes. known, partially not known, inherently relational, right? The, the, the adjacency argument, then the, the supreme version of that is also going to be the supreme exemplification of that feature of all ontology. And so the God experience and the God concept will have that built into it. Yes. It will always be not quite itself as far as we are concerned. And, and all of that is that structure.
0: Yes,
1: yes, yes, yes.
0: I'd like to add to that um, from Raimon Panikkar, who I was mentioning. Uh, one of the ways that he approaches that, he, he looks at the Christian notion of the Trinity and also relates that to Buddhist notions of emptiness and in one you know really profound book that he has. Uh, but in the conception of the Trinity, there's this, it, there's this ambiguity built into that. This self-other, exactly. yeah. self, other, decide itself, interpenetration, um, circumincession, yeah. mutual indwelling, where they're both slipping in and out of each other, and there's no, you know. So that that is uh, for him a symbol of this decidability, undecidability, yeah, of, yeah, of unfolding yeah. creation.
1: I hadn't thought about that. Thank you, Bruce. That's fantastic. The sort of the profound ontological ambiguity conveyed by the Trinity, and that that taps into something that 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 acts acts as a the Neoplatonists had this term akama, like the vehicle that acts as the vehicle for for deep conformity between the depths of reality and the depths of ourselves. Yeah, and, and for me, this is to this is to speak to what i think the fundamental message of post of at least derrida's postmodernism is is this fundamental ambiguity sown within the heart of intelligibility and that the attempts to resolve it in a pur- perfect complete clarity are futile attempts i mean i have lots of criticisms of derrida but i think that's a profound point that mm-hmm. needs to, and what we're talking about here i think is deeply responsible to that point but but takes it beyond uh, where Derrida situates it. My criticism of Derrida is he can only think about this at the propositional level, the textual level. He can't. He can't. He can't grasp that that has a positive uh, feature to it in the in the way it is actually more deeply present within the non-propositional aspects of our being. And so that would be my critical response to Derrida. But I think that that insight he had, I think, it, is a profound one. You can see Plato really, really wrestling with it and how he keeps going back and forth. Uh, of, of, like if you read like the, the dialogue of the Parmenides and he's picking up on all this weirdness uh, and self-refutation of the theory of the forms itself. And Sandy says, the point of that is to get us not to come to a you know a final conclusion, but to go through a metanoia about how we think about intelligibility. So I, like for me, this is the deeper moment I want to talk about. I want to talk, like I, when I had the discussion with... Uh, uh, the two Pauls recently, uh, Paul V and Paul A, about God. Um, and I said, I, I want to go back to talk about, talking about God before God because I want to talk about these things. that I call them the four L's, where we're precisely at this point we're talking about, like love and logos and light and life. They're all profoundly, in the way we're talking about, profoundly ambiguous, but not in this static like a lack of in the sense of like the dynamic that you just talked about in the Trinity, they all have this feature. And, and it's interesting that, you know, these are, these are, for me, these are repeated for identity claims made for God uh, within and without the Christian tradition, you know, God is life, light logos, love, but I don't know about you, but me, love is profound and love puts me into conformity or profound conformity with other people in reality, but I find love deeply, deeply ambiguous. Such that the project of being wise—if I—if there's one area of my life that I want to be wise in, I want to know how to love wisely, be precisely because that love is not something that I can bring into a determinate, complete clarity. That would actually completely destroy the the process that I want to participate in. I think all of them uh, properly. Like, you know, light, light, especially as a metaphor of intelligibility, we see by it, but we can't see it, and all of that stuff. But do, do you understand what I'm trying to get at? That, like, trying to get back to talk about um, the, the, these deep vehicles of conformity that at the, are at the core of our talking of God, yet if we are honest— And I'm not, I'm not accusing people of being duplicitous. I'm just speaking to myself. If we are honest, we experience them in a profoundly ambiguous way in our life. Here's the, here's the clear evidence. Ask people what contributes most to their meaning in life, their love relationships. Ask them what most contributes to the suffering in their life, their love relationships. (laughs) That's a profound ambiguity. That's Mm -hmm. at the, that's at the, that's at the, whatever apex nadir nexus of people's being. Yeah, and that's
2: touched in some, but not all, of the profound wisdom traditions we inhabit. Like um, Job is a particularly good instance of how ambiguously God can present. Yes. And and there's also that tension in Job between the people who say, you should believe this or you should believe that, and Job holding out for an actual encounter. And this is interesting to me because we're in a very philosophical conversation, but a lot of a lot of the sources of the notion of God are in people's actual uh, mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. And when I look at my own history of those experiences early in life, I sort of had that, you know, you have an experience or you see something and all you can do is instinctively reach for the most ultimate term that you are socially aware of. Cause that's clearly what you just encountered. This some, it's dripping with ultimacy,
1: Yeah.
2: but over time, I learned to be able to have the experiences and have the more ambiguous interpretation coincide. And that's a difficult ongoing work because a lot of people can go, oh, sure, I understand what you're saying about ambiguity, but when I behold it, it's absolute. And you go, is it though? Because uh, couldn't you get to a place where you behold it as absolutely in its ambiguity? And then we would kind of cross a threshold to a whole new kind of discourse.
1: Yes, yes. I, I, would, I, would wanna, I wanna first of all say that I, I realize we're in a philosophical conversation, but it is directed to and I hope in service of those, those enacted encounters. And I would say, uh, I, uh, and this isn't a criticism of you, because I, I, I'm trying to do it myself, Lehmann, I'm trying to pay, because I'm going back into Tillich a bit, but right? I'm trying to pay attention to both, if, if you allow me spatial metaphor, the summit of our mystical experience, but also the nadir of what he calls our limit experiences. Because I think people also encounter God, or at least the absence of God, if I can put it that way, in these nadir experiences, the experiences of profound absurdity, the experiences of profound alienation, of existential, not psychosomatic, but existential anxiety, you know, that Kierkegaard talks about. I think those are also moments that are properly within uh, 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 the denotation of the sacred, like they fall under, the, the sacred should address them. And for me, what what I'm sort of seeing is that's a fundamental sort of ambiguity written into ultimacy itself, um, in a certain way. And uh, I, I I I I trying to under trying to understand how to respond to that deeply. Here, here's what I mean: like I think one of the things we need to do is we need to help people deal with the perennial problems of self-deception and self-severance from the world in which they experienced profound anxiety and absurdity and alienation. And we're not doing that well as a culture. We need to do that. But on the other hand, in our, I guess, appropriately called philosophical reflection, we should note the limit situations as well as the mystical situations as we attempt to understand the ontological basis of people's encounter, positive and negative, with the sacred. Did that make any sense? I, like, I, 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 I am getting into monologue here, and that this is only making sense to me. But did that make sense? What I just said? Uh, well,
0: yeah, for me it does a lot, and I'm toying with whether we want to go deeper into this or to transition to another part of the talk. And I'm going to try to finesse something <laughs> that does both. <golf>, okay, <laughs> um, so for. I've noticed, even though I don't uh, agree with everything that's going on in that project, but there's something going on in object-oriented ontology. Yes, where they're folding this ambiguity into objects, into entities, yes. that they they both present themselves in a shining <laughs> presentation and they withdraw. And yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's not just a you know a, a feature of our epistemological limitation, but it's it's no. posited as as part of the yeah. ontological reality. And to me, there's something about that evocation of the presenting and withdrawing um, being of the other that actually invites us into love relationship where, yes. because we we know that we can never capture the other in our representations, that mm-hmm. they, they're never possessed as mine in my understanding or, or, or in any sense. And... To, to really then relate to such a being involves to some degree a willing dissolution of your boundaries to, to, to move into that withdrawing and mm-hmm. to come into deeper, more intimate contact, which is simultaneously increased vulnerability, um, increased uh, yeah, threat to your own integrity of being. And there's always that, that dance that we're, we're doing with one another. I think morally, ethically, it's really important to recognize the non-exhausting of any of our relationships uh, to the other, that, that we can't exhaust them in that relationship, and the acknowledgement of that inexhaustibility invites us forward into potentially, in, in a love context, deeper and more intimate you know, forms of, of relating. And Panikkar talks about his conception of the Trinity as cosmotheandric where the feel is the depth dimension and you could see it as that withdrawing dimension where God is love, but God is that contact point to black hole to black hole, point to receding point along that 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 trajectory where the, the, the world and the self are folded continually into each other and remade and actively through relationship, through this deep reciprocal form of relating and that can bring you to nader point experiences and peak experiences. Yeah. And so the, the, the transition I wanted to finesse is in terms of our practice and the, the kinds of practice that we want to cultivate and, uh, you know, integral practices, one of the key figures is the centaur. Hmm. And the centaur is the being that embodies their their deeper somatic animal nature and their higher potential nature and the the work of becoming a centaur or a center ride for a fem- female is to go through largely existential crisis and wrestle with our limit conditions as well as have you know peak yeah. and exalted experiences yeah, 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 and, yeah. Washburn is a really good person for mapping out yeah. that kind yeah. of territory, yeah. and there's this need to wrestle with both and the transpersonal and the higher spiritual stuff doesn't have a sure footing if you don't establish this more deeply integrated, existentially wise, centauric kind of being.
1: So, so I'm a Sagittarius, so I uh, I really identify with that move. <laughs> um, so I, I want to take it. I want to take it. Like uh, I, I appreciate the finesse, but I, so for me, uh, Dan Chieppe and I, we're, we're going through Marlo Ponti again. You know, and he's the he's the godfather of embodied cognition, um, cognitive science. And 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 he has the uh, he has the point about he calls it the dehiscence of the body, but it's a kind of fundamental ambiguity in the body. The body touches and is touched, and so it, it is both. Uh, it's both one of all the bodies but it's also other than all the bodies cuz it it we touch it but we're also touched like uh, and, and so it ha- it has this sort of folded you've been using the folded language right uh it has this folded nature and it it allows us to contact things because when we contact something we aren't subsumed in it we aren't consumed by it and we aren't separate from it we're we're uh, we're we we are in contact while remaining separate again a kind of ambiguous place and
0: i just say integral means tag is touch in integral integrity
1: ah but there you go that's excellent so that he points out that the fundamental ambiguity which you can also see more in positive terms as this dehiscence of the body right is what ultimately grounds our our access to the world and i'm pointing out that that's the that that's the you know, that's the, the that's the horse part of the centaur. That's the grounded, like the embodied aspect to pay attention to it. Remember when I was talking earlier about sort of the, the paradoxical nature of reason, that reason is always beyond itself um, in an important way. It's, it's inherently ecstatic. The ecstatic capacity of reason, I think, is ultimately grounded in this, the dehiscence of the body. Uh, and so I think if we do not get into that fundamental ambiguity, if we think of it critically, and dehiscence, if we think of it positively, if we don't get into the fundamental of our... And this is what, you know, what Evan, Evan Thompson has been trying to get us to see, what he calls the body-body problem. Rather mm-hmm. than the mind-body problem, we have to do the body-body problem, and that that's actually how we get access to reality, and it fundamentally grounds the paradoxical nature of reason. It allows reason... It's because of that, the, that nature of the body that reason can transcend itself. That's the that's the primary argument that's being made. And so the, 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 you know, the Sagittarian centaur is shooting. That's the self-transcendence. But the self-transcendence is, is exacted, is continuous with the, the, the way embodiment has this folded upon itself nature. And that means our, I, that's not just a theoretical point. The degree to which we try to shoot the arrow without living the body is means I think we're going to be prey to something that is on the increase. I know it's on the increase because psychologists are now studying it. That's always, for me, a heuristic that something's coming in to cultural prominence, which is spiritual bypassing. I think spiritual bypassing and narcissism, which reverberate with each other very powerful, are becoming two of the most profound uh, sort of spiritual challenges we're facing. And, and the thing about spiritual bypassing is it's not limited to a particular religion or a particular right? A particular metaphysical frame, you can see it growing in all of these different areas, also within secular frames as well, right? And so I think if we try to shoot the arrow of self-transcendence without deeply practicing the the vital ambiguity of embodiment, we will be prone to a profound kind of self-deception through spiritual bypassing. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to finesse with you. I'm trying to take the theoretical point and say it has a very prescriptive point about what we should be looking for in our ecologies and practices. One of, the, one of the negative features, the constraints, is when people are proposing ecologies, I look for, does it look like this is going in the direction of spiritual bypassing that people are trying to escape? So for, for example, for me, I, you, know, you, you both know that I love Neoplatonism, But I'm deeply, deeply critical of that aspect of Neoplatonism. Porphyry begins Plotinus's biography by saying Plotinus always behaved like somebody who is ashamed of having a body. And oh, wow, that's a that's something. Something's going really wrong there. And so, uh, for me, uh, for this is uh, to use it in Jordan Hall's sense of the word. This is a design feature for any ecology of practices. Um, If it's if it's, if it's not pro- I'll use your mythology. If it's not properly living out the centaur, then it is going to be prone to spiritual bypassing and spiritual bypassing. If you pay attention like to what it does to people when they get out of it, nobody says, I'm so glad I went through spiritual bypassing. People will you know, those people will say, I'm gl- kind of glad I went through the existential crisis. People will say that, but they don't go, you know what? I'm really glad I went through the spiritual bypassing. They almost universally say, wow. That was a mistake. I hope I don't ever do that again, and I think that's an important lesson to put our finger on right there. I'm. Uh,
2: I really like where this conversation is going. I like thinking about God as an unspecified set of implicitly non-absolutistic limit conditions, uh, which are of all kinds. Right there, this is the most amazing thing, but also I'm hitting rock bottom. But also, the philosopher is specifying where reason can and can't go. I think that's, you know, Descartes' spirituality was in finding limit conditions of thought. Mm -hmm. But the conversation around limit conditions has traditionally been that they are absolute limits, and they really aren't. They're much more like uh, infinitesimals where it still functions, it completely functions but it never completely gets there. That boundary is not closed and therefore is inherently ambiguous and inherently relational with whatever it does not close upon. Well said. I mean, that's, uh, this is the adjacency thing. Uh, The way I think about it in general, I think there's a, uh, something about what, for me, what makes the centaur different than the minotaur is there's a directionality, right? The minotaur has regressed in a way the thinking is that of the animal And the body is that of the person rather than person thinking and an animal body. So there's something about the order of the relationship of the parts that Mm -hmm. makes it start to function like a minotaur. And hopefully it's a minotaur that is full spectrum. Uh, And I want to say that that's something like, you know, the chakras as modes of interaction, where each of those modes is a form of relationship. And the form of relationship is the source of experience and the source of experience is what gives rise to reason. And if we define reason something like that, where it's inherently multiplistic, multimodal and relational in its source, then we can prevent that Plotinus problem from arising because built into the nature of reason is the
1: fact that it cannot separate itself from the body, from the world, from life. Yes, 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 yes. I agree with that. I think that's well said. I was hearing Hegel in layman and I don't know if you'd like, if you like that or not. But Hegel made that criticism of Kant, right? That right that you can only know a limit if you can transcend it. That you can't know that you're in a limit for, unless you can transcend it to some degree. And then, and then of course, Hegel did some weird stuff with that. I like people like Schlegel who were right on right before Hegel, but we're already, you know, we're the we we are the finite, constantly longing for the infinite, and that and and we only know our infinite. We only know. The shape of our finitude, to the degree to which we can transcend it to some degree while still remaining finite, and that's exactly that's exactly the fundamental feature of reason. Again, um, so it's also the finite nature of our body, the dehiscence and the finite nature of our body that is so fundamental to our our, our reason. But again, notice that this is this is a way of talking about reason that integrates insight um, and will allow us to talk, like to enter into deep discussion with the mystical, deep dialogos, I would put it, but also deep dialogos with with the limit situations that Tillich uh, and, you know, Kierkegaard uh, made famous. And for me, that's the positive argument for this reconceptualization of reason. Just like Einstein's account of gravity is better because it can say where Newton's gravity worked and extend beyond it. This conception of reason is better because it can say where the classical worked, but it can also say where it didn't work and, and, and reach out. And so it's a similar, exactly similar stuff. I don't know why that person is keep blowing their horn. Um, <laughs> right. It's exactly, it's exactly the same structure of argument. And for me, that's, that's that that deep reformulation, not just reconceiving, the reformulation of reason is bound together with the reformulation of God. Um, in the way that we've been talking about here, in some profound way, because I think that that we 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 try to we we we, we hmm. <laughs> I have to be really careful here. We propose to ourselves pictures and propositions about God based on kind of an understanding of the ultimacy of our ability to render things intelligible um, in some fashion, and. For me, one of the things I like about the Neoplatonic tradition is it made that explicit and focal and said, you know, that's that's how we do it. So let's really wrestle with this um, in of so profound ways. That's one of the reasons why I like it. But I think given what we said about the inherent ambiguities, but not in a negative sense. I, I want a word other than ambiguity because I want that word, a word that covers, like, that's why I like dehiscence, but it's such a horrible sounding word, right? Uh, the ecstasis of of reason, right? Uh, that that for me lines up with the fundamental and spiritual ambiguity of reality in a, in a, in a deep way. And that's what I mean about how they, we can actually see a deep kind of love between them possible to pick up on your point, Bruce. And for me, if like, if I, if, you know, if you were to put me into a corner, that's my proposal for what would be at the heart of the religion. That's not a religion trying to get that working for people reliably, systematically, individually, and collectively within an ecology of practices.
2: Yeah, something I'm thinking about your, I mean, it's a beautiful phrase, uh, imaginal augmentation.
1: Yes. The idea
2: that we're going to use certain performances and the imaginal complement of those performances to gain optimal drip on patterns that might not otherwise be accessible to us. How do we make the distinction between gaining imaginal virtuosity and going into some kind of um, self-isolated, maladaptive simulation yeah. quarantine yeah. phenomenon, yeah. Yeah. right? And a lot of that has to do with these problems because Plotinus, a reason separating from the body is a problem because it's sort of quarantined apart from these other functions. Likewise, yes. the Minotaur has become sort of all body and lost its reasoning capacities. Yes. And yes. so the problem of Uh, What can go wrong in imaginal augmentation is a problem of getting locked down in one of the zones and then missing the rest of the zones. And the the way we prevent that is, I think, twofold. One is we understand that what we mean by the imaginal is much more diverse, that it's not a... You know, it's not just some visionary experience that fantasizers have. It's actually spread upon the world for anyone with eyes to see it. It's a component of ordinary perception. If you wanted to gain virtuosity, it's everywhere in every direction. And the other part is that the, the full set of the ecology of practices is needed right? So that any any one of them can go wrong unless it's counterbalanced by the rest of them, right? Any one of the systems will fail and exhibit the same problematic regressive capacities unless the other ones are actively
1: remembered and energized as well. Yeah, I I mean, thank you. I think that was a beautiful articulation and elaboration of the, the two points I've made about uh, the imaginal. The imaginal is the imagination for the sake of perception, not as the removal from perception. It's fundamentally different from the imaginary in that way. And then the ecology of practices as fundamentally having this capacity for self-correction um, that we've been talking about all the way through. Yes, exactly. Um, um, I, I don't have much to say to that, but I just then thank you. you. You articulated those points and drew them together to each other and to this conversation very well.
0: I'd like to take a few points here and and kind of situate what we're looking at with the ecology of practices or in the integral world we call integral life practice or integral transformative practice. And especially this idea that, that Lehman just brought up about the, the danger of possibly just following certain experiences into limited zones and, and, and interrupting you know more balanced kinds of development. And so I think it's, you know, since both on the integral, the IPS side, and I think on, on what you're doing with the RNR, if I can call it that. And religion, is of- <laughs> <laughs> we can look at the human potential movement as an example and, and kind of what started happening in the sixties and, and, and going forward. And, yes. you know, first there was a fascination with the, the peak experiences and there are a lot of people, Imagining that if they just went to this workshop or had this kind of experience and they're going to be transformed with a a special kind of contact with some other realm or dimension. And as we continue with that, we wised up and we saw actually usually those peak, you know, experiences don't reverberate out into a fully changed life. And so we we then began to look at how to develop plateau experiences. And that involved more dedication to ongoing practice and working, you know, in particular yeah. domains, um, really getting serious about a regular yoga practice or Tai Chi or, or, or Zen or, or whatever. Um, but then we also began to reach the limits of that, I think, in our own cultural experiments and, and to see while those things were beneficial, they tended to develop us in certain areas and leave other aspects of our lives yeah. relatively untouched. Mm-hmm. And then so out of places like Eslin with George Leonard and Michael Murphy, they began to propose integral transformative practices, some kinds of practice that would draw on different dimensions of, of human experience and, and exercise them um, in a more balanced way. Mm-hmm. And they used the metaphor, the Greek metaphor of antikoluthia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the mutual entailment of the virtues, that a virtue by itself, is not a virtue unless it's in coordination and, and balanced by other virtues. Yes. And that you know transpersonal experience is not really a virtue, not really a boon if it's not balanced by other centoric kinds of development. It can easily go off into limited forms of expression and pathology yep. and spiritual bypassing. And so one of the reasonings that Leonard and Murphy gave for uh, the need for an integral transformative practice is following along the traditional spiritual roots that a lot of people were experimenting with. You could get into different kinds of traps. One of them is reinforcement of traits where people are attracted to certain spiritual communities because they have certain dispositions and those. Right. Right. So it'll, it'll cultivate that, but it'll trap you in just working on that and leave others, other things out. And there's a, potential for perpetuating limiting beliefs, maybe some psychotechnology has underlying it some, some limited metaphysical belief and mm. about reality. And the more you do that, the more it reinforces that belief Yes, Life is suffering in a, in a narrow way. That's not really generative or productive. So yeah, we want to, you know, there's a, they gave a number of different kinds of examples of how we can get limited by non-integral, um, they're not using Wilbur's, They're they're predating Wilbur, but you know, non-holistic, balanced approaches. What what you're calling, you know, and I think a much more felicitous language, ecologies of practice. Um, the the necessity of that to really help ground us as centauric beings and and wrestle with the limit conditions and have adequate room for for growth in multiple areas and. One little th- last piece I'd like to throw in here is Slaughterdyke with this notion of anthropotechnics. And he talks about us in, in Nietzschean terms as practicing beings. We're the ascetic species. We become yeah. by practice. We become by play. And yeah. there's this idea you know, that all, all mammals learn by, by play and we're autopoetic, self-making beings. And human beings in some way have learned to hack some of our autopoetic mechanisms and allow for, um, the, you know, development along multiple lines that yes, are not yeah. typically realized by, by animals. So, uh, how can we respond to what he calls this vertical tension of, of growth, um, and development, but in a way that doesn't run away in these narrow trajectories that that ultimately can, you know, thwart the overall balanced growth and development of wisdom.
1: That was beautiful, Bruce. Um, who were the two researchers you mentioned, Michael or something? I can't...
0: Uh... Oh, Michael Murphy um, Michael. And, and George Leonard, and they're from, uh, they, they opened this Esalen Institute in California. Michael Murphy published a really interesting, big, thick book called The Future of the Body, looking at um, modern understandings of of, of, the body and cognitive function, but also looking all the way through history at these unusual capacities that people under extreme conditions and extreme forms of practice have been said to have developed and Mm -hmm. to take a critical eye to them, but think about what does this say about the plasticity of human being and what our potentials possibly are for, for further growth and development.
1: I'd be interested in that, but I'm also more interested in the the original work you referred to where they made criticisms about the kinds of cul-de-sacs and evolutionary dead ends. People get Did they put that into a book or was that into a series of papers? Or
0: It's in both The Future of the Body and also a later book called The Life We Are Given.
1: Mm. I'd like to look at that because I'm ignorant of this, but it sounds like it's uh, a body of literature I should pay attention to with trying to reflect upon design features for an ecology of practice. So thank you for bringing that the life we are given right by Michael Murphy. And who was the George, other,
0: George Leonard,
1: Leonard, Murphy and Leonard. I will look that up. Thank you for that, Bruce.
0: Sure. One of the things that they propose, and I think we can get into different recommended recommended practices and things, but they went through a, you know, a sequence of different proposals, kind of what they came out to, at the end, uh, in the life we are given, is basic recommendations of, you know, aerobic exercise and diet and community and relational practice and dialogical practice. And what they developed is something called a kata, like a 40-minute routine, which is balancing and centering exercises, yeah, yeah, visualization exercises, deep in, uh, interior stillness practices. Yeah,
1: I've got to get this book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This book is really going to be very helpful to me uh wow what there's been so many gems in this conversation i really appreciated it but that but that's that's very i'm going to order this book basically as soon as we're done uh, so thank you for that bruce um uh because uh, i mean increasingly i now am wearing two hats I, I mean i still wear the hat as the scientist theorist but increasingly i'm wearing the hat of trying to help people build ecologies and practices network these communities together network the communities of communities together and so I want to get as much education uh, in this where people are talking about design features as I possibly can. So thank you for that. That That's very helpful.
2: It's interesting with ecologies of practice, because uh, one way to go at it is to collect a lot of practices and see what the basic classes of practices are that should be in play. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then another way is to look for and or um, create practices that, take a lot of the things we're discussing into account yes i was just thinking about now obviously in in buddhist terminology this tends to be Shamta and vipassana it tends to be a mind taming practice and a sort of uh exploring what's coming up practice of meditation and when you're exploring what's coming up if you are let's say therapeutically able to explore all the different parts of yourself, then if you just let attention go wherever it goes and discover that in whatever area it is, your problematic response in that area is a resistance to an interactive intensity, right? To a relational force that you don't want to fully engage, whether it's in thinking or emotion or sexuality, embodiment, hunger, whatever, if you're willing to go in all the areas and find where it's, where there's a limiting condition of relational intensity that's being refused because you don't fully accept that quality of human experience, uh, then like that's a kind of uh, self-exploration meditation practice that would fold in several, half a dozen of the things we've been discussing today. And we may th- be able to generate um, versions of practice that take a lot of these things into account. And that can work along with uh, simply having a collection of the classes of practice that uh, every system or every person should need to have in mind.
1: I think that's deeply right. And, um, and I mean this as a compliment. I think you're proposing a significant uh, updating, reformulation of, you know, of shadow work. Uh, I think that was the original intent of shadow work and then it's got it got shifted out of sort of the procedural and the participatory i think often dangerously into autobiog into the autobiographical arena and that the shadow work is for me to work with trauma and horrible events but well, i'm not saying that that might not be part of it but like what you talked about layman was much more properly you know dealing with uh, you know uh, often a procedural a perspectival or a participatory level you know aspects of ourself. That need to come into need to come into development alignment with the rest of us uh, that we're not properly open to. If I if I understood you correctly, mm-hmm. and, and I think that is a much more comprehensive understanding of shadow work than what is becoming a very common interpretation of it. Which I think, and that common interpretation, I think, is day starts to move people dangerously close to a kind of narcissism. Yeah. Again right? Which it's almost like, you know, my shadow is better than your shadow kind of uh, crap that people get into. Um, whereas this, I think, is uh, very, very helpful. I, I've been talking uh, uh, to some people, Chris Chris is very big on this, Christopher Mastipietro, and I'm starting to take a look, although I have to do it much more deeply at Chloe Valdery's work, uh, uh, right, um, about shadow work. Uh, because I do think well, I have a slogan for this: as distraction is to meditation, projection is to dialogos. Hmm. Trying to get a practice into the dialogos that properly deals with the shadow, but understood in the way you talked about it, layman, rather than just my idiosyncratic uh, autobiographical pitfalls or avoidances, uh, but rather a much more systemic understanding, uh, and bring that into dialogical practice, so people can note, uh, get more sensitively aware to when they are projecting in dialogos um so what you just said i think is deeply right uh, in an important way uh, gentlemen i need to get going soon uh if that's possible because i foresee if we could talk about this uh, all, all the time i'm quite happy to come back uh but i should get
0: going soon certainly that i think there's so much to me that feels still ripe and waiting to be explored um i know <laughs> Super booked all the time, but uh, I'd be a delight to talk to you more about some of this, but we can, we can conclude it here. Um, I, I don't know if there's any final things that anyone would like to share. I would just say that it, for me, it's been a, a really delightful um, exchange and conversation. And it, I feel that we got into moments of Dialogos and that there was a real yep. Yep. Uh, Very much. sharing happening in terms of, uh, you know, mutuality of vision and, and, and possibility.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would do more of this. I think there's a nice flavor and a lot of complimentary insights uh, generatively moving forward. I One thing I had in mind to mention that didn't come up from was uh, Chugim Trungpa. Right? If we're familiar with him, as the, he's a very interesting character, not only in terms of somebody who's tried to do some of these projects before, because he wasn't just uh, Tibetan Tolku bringing... Tibetan Buddhism to the West, he tried to reformat it for postmodern Western culture. He tried to create a version of it that didn't have any particular set of traditional um, metaphysical assertions with it in his Shambhala practice. And he was also, I think, notably good in using what I would call post-metaphysical language, which is if you listen to him, he says seems all the time. And It's very interesting to do a very elaborate philosophical analysis of why we need to be post-metaphysical, right? Why even our absolutes are still ambiguous, things like that. That's a very beautiful thing. But for the average person, uh, it's very simple and straightforward for them to understand that they can do practices apart from belief systems and that when they encounter something, they can describe it with a seems. It seems like I saw the face of God. That's very simple, it's very straightforward, it's very understandable. It doesn't require us to be Plotinus in order to appreciate that. And I think certain figures um, like Chug and Trungpa, but also others, have have predated us in this territory. And there's a lot for us to learn from people who've tried this already. And uh, I think, especially people who've been, you know, I'm not trying to be a promoter of Chogim Trungpa for any reason, he just came up for me because I think there are characters who have brought these projects to manifestation, and we can see how they did that and whether it succeeded or not. And they've also evolved ways of talking that can be very colloquially useful to people and not just to uh, people
1: who are philosophically acute. I agree with that, you know, cutting through spiritual materialism, I think was a precursor. Of uh, the recognition of the dangers of spiritual bypassing, um, etc., um, and spiritual narcissism. Um, so, yeah, uh, and of course, he also uh, fell prey uh, to, uh, sure. to to his own yeah, um, far far from perfect. But uh, uh no, no, a good that, that was the janitor of our to, projects. Yeah, that was not to dismiss him. That was to say, I, I take yeah. I I, I, rega- I regard him as more authentic, precisely because yeah. of that, um, in an important way. Uh, again i I think we should stop looking for the perfect person uh, to to listen to and only the perfect person can from uh, will give us the truth I think we're really caught up in that really really dangerous kind of bullshit right now in our culture we're trying to find the per- the perfect person the perfect the person whose perfection is obvious and who guarantees by their perfection that they will give us unadulterated truth beyond question and just looking for that i think is just a fundamental mistake. And it's a deeply dangerous mistake. That's Um,
2: very much what I was trying to say, which is that the same thing applies in different areas, right? There's an absolutism of speech that we need to get beyond. There's an absolutism of how we conceive of God that we need to get beyond. There's an absolutism and who we think is, is the most amazing, most perfect source of knowledge. And we have to get beyond that because even the most intense and useful sources are still permeable, Right? They're still
1: incomplete, and that's what makes them so useful. Well, it, it, it sounds to me that that's a good topic for our next conversation. Because yeah, maybe next time. <laughs> here's the problem I would pose uh, for, for me to have the last. Oh, first of all, thank you. This was amazing. Uh, the problem I would pose for, for, for committing to next time is how do we get into the, you know, how do we transcend absolutism? Because D.C. Schindler really takes this up in Plato's critique of impure reason as the core problem of the Republic. How do we, how do, we, how do, we do that uh, without falling into re- relativism? How can we see uh, something that transcends that dichotomy in a profound way, or as DC Schindler puts it, I'm not totally happy with this, but how, how, how can we see the absolute as also comprehending and being fully present in the relative or the, appar- the apparent? Uh, really getting at a reformulation of the appearance reality distinction. Uh, which I think is what's behind the typical absolute relative so uh, that would be the problem I would like to explore because I think that's also something our culture is wrestling with but not wrestling with very well and I think it, 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 it I'll, I'll use this uh, I'll use this for provocatively I think it infects a lot of spiritual practices today
0: well, that's a topic I've got some thoughts on, so I'm looking forward to seeing one of you next time. <laughs> yeah, to me too. I, th- that's really resonant. I, I love it. And uh, I was thinking of bringing in some exemplars, uh, mention of some exemplars of this kinds of practice that I think really navigate that line very well. So we can you know, look forward to that in, in the future. Great.
1: Excellent. All right. Be Excellent. well, gentlemen. Take good care.
0: Yeah, you too. Take care.